church. Um, this morning I'm reading from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as, they, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Martha, I do want to thank you for your gracious invitation to uh, occupy this pulpit this morning. <clears throat> and to, to say what a privilege it is for me <clears throat> to be here among you and to be sharing God's word with you. And just as we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence and we pray that your Holy Spirit may be our teacher, that your word may be our guide, and that by your power we may go forth to live it this day and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, I count it a great privilege to be here today, especially since Karen and I have only been worshiping with you at least regularly for the last five weeks or so. Um, but it has been clear to us um, just in this short time that God is doing a great work in the midst of this congregation and uh, what a privilege it has been for us just to be here and worship with you. Well, 33 years. Sometimes, especially when my old knees are bothering me, I wish I could go back to the age I was when this church was founded. <clears throat> but it excites me that uh, many of you were not even a twinkle in your parents' eyes uh, when First Congregation came into being. 33 years ago, I was still using a typewriter to prepare my sermons. Anyone here know what a typewriter is? <laughs> 33 years. The tender age of an innocent man who hung dying on a cross. As he cried aloud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the skies darkened, and the world would never be the same again. And it's in the shadow of that event that we meet this morning as Jesus' followers. And it was in the shadow of that event that those followers met so many centuries ago as you read about them in the book of Acts chapter four. And there Luke gives us one of his wonderful little glimpses into the life of the community that had begun to form in the city of Jerusalem. And a remarkable picture it is. 
The church was barely in its infancy. But just take a look at it. Luke tells us in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were one in heart and soul. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony and great grace was upon them all. Now, I'm convinced that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has given us this amazing portrait of the church for a reason. It's not quite like a picture in an art gallery where you can stand and admire it for a few moments and then move on to the next one. No, as beautiful and compelling as this picture is, it's far more than that. In fact, I want to say it's the second little portrait that Luke gives us of the church in the early chapters of Acts. And just as with the first one uh, in chapter 2, he's written it down for us, uh, not only to show us what the church was like, but also to show us what the church is both called by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be. And so we can see in these verses a kind of pattern, a model of the church. And not that we're required to follow it precisely to the letter, but we are to learn from it, to glean principles from it, and then by the Holy Spirit's power to put those principles into practice. So what are the principles that Luke wants to share with us? I want to suggest that there are three, and they fall under the headings of community, testimony, and generosity. Community, testimony, and generosity. So let's begin with community. We find it right there in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Do you hear that? They were of one heart and soul. And I believe that description stands in dramatic contrast so much of what people are experiencing in our society today. What we see around us is so often is not community, but estrangement. It's not connection, but alienation. It's not togetherness, but a profound loneliness. It's more than 20 years since uh, Robert Putnam wrote his book, Bowling Alone. And in it, he detailed the gradual decline over the previous 50 years in community involvement, in everything from political parties and public meetings to membership in civil, civic organizations and social clubs. And of course, that includes the church. In the years since he wrote, I believe the decline has only become more precipitous. Social media for an increasing number of people have taken the place of real relationships. We spend more time texting on our, tele, on our cell phones than in face-to-face -face conversation. And now, to put the icing on the cake, we have COVID, which has forced us even further into our separate cocoons, where we hesitate to give one another a hug or even exchange a handshake. And even a friendly smile is obscured by a mask. All of this stands in such stark contrast to God's plan. You've only to read two chapters into the Bible where God has just created the universe and all its beauty and complexity out of its nothing. And each day, 
God brings more and more things into being. Sun, moon, and stars, dry ground and seas, plants and trees, animals and birds and fish in all their endless profusion. And at the end of each of those days, what's the chorus that we hear? Can anyone tell me? And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And then we turn the page and we read about God forming the first human being from the dust of the earth. God looks down once more upon the creation that he has brought into being. But this time, what does he say? Not it is good, but it is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. You see, God has created you and me for community. Excuse me. And when God, and when God begins to bring about his new creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, what is one of the first things that we begin to see happening? Community. And an amazing community it was. A community where people saw themselves as belonging to one another. Years later, the Apostle Paul would reflect on this and would describe the church as a body where feet and hands and eyes and ears and noses, not to mention all our internal organs, are all interconnected and interdependent. Community, wrote Henry Nouwen, is not a human creation, but a divine gift. But it doesn't just happen spontaneously, Nouwen warned. It calls for an obedient response. This response may require much patience and humility, much listening and speaking, much confrontation and self-examination. But it should always be an obedient response to a bond which is given and not made. I believe that one of the greatest challenging facing our church in our Western society today is to be that kind of community where the self-giving love of Christ is visibly and tangibly present. I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, that's what many people are looking for in our society today. And I believe that when people find it, they will flock to it like bees to a honeypot. Well, if the first mark of the church was community, then the second was, do you remember? Testimony. Luke tells us in our passage this morning that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, it may have been the apostles who were tasked with proclaiming the gospel uh, at the beginning, but that didn't last for very long. We have only to turn to chapter 8 of Acts, which I suspect you may do at some point, to read that it was ordinary believers who carried the good news about Jesus outside the confines of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the farthest reaches of the known world. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it in his translation of the Bible. Forced to leave home base, he wrote, the Christians 
became missionaries. Sorry, the Christians all became missionaries. Wherever they were scattered, they proclaimed the message about Jesus. I remember several years ago when Karen and I were in Libya, in North Africa, strolling through the ruins of a Roman city that had flourished a century or two after the time of Christ. Those, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I shouldn't tell you, but I brought my own here. <laughs> I always forget to drink from it. <laughs> That's very kind. That's part of being a community, isn't it? So there we were in, in Libya, uh, in this city that had been uh, flourished in Roman times about a century or two after the time of Jesus. Those were years when being a Jesus follower was still forbidden by the powers that be, and Christians were severely persecuted for their faith. And yet as we walked through the ruins, scratched in, and carved into rocks and walls, I could spot an ichthus here and a, a Cairo there, Christian symbols. And I have to tell you, it was a deeply moving experience to stand in front of that silent witness of my Christian brothers and sisters of centuries ago who would not be stopped from sharing their faith, even if it was only to scratch it into a rock. Could they have imagined in all their wildest dreams that nearly 2,000 years later, their message would still be visible. But those early believers were simply practicing what they had learned from the example of people like John. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. They were convinced of what the great evangelist Paul had declared years before. Like him, they were not ashamed to proclaim the good news about Jesus, for they knew it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And they could not be kept silent. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you'd start carving Christian symbols into walls or that you start buttonholing people on the street. But what I am saying is, that we cannot be silent. In that regard, we need to take advice, uh, sorry, to heart, the wise advice of the Apostle Peter. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Amen. Yet, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. I believe that what Peter was recognizing in that verse is that the Christian message is um, most commonly and most effectively communicated in the context of relationships. It's when people are able to see the difference that Jesus makes in your life and in mine that they begin to ask questions. And then when we have an opportunity, not to cajole or coerce them through some kind of sales talk, but to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us to their hearts. Well, we've looked at community, testimony, and the third mark is generosity. Thank you, Marvin. <laughs> A preacher would know. <laughs> if we're to believe what people report on their income tax returns, 
we Canadians are not, by and large, a generous society. Taken as a whole, what proportion of their income do you think Canadians give to charities? It's about 1.6%, at least from the figures that I was reading. And half of those who contribute don't even give $200 in the course of a year. Now, I recognize that you can't measure everything in dollars and cents, and that generosity can be expressed, and must be expressed, in fact, in a whole variety of ways. But the generosity that we see in those first believers in this chapter of Acts was an extravagant generosity. It's the generosity that Jesus talked about when he spoke of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, pouring into your lap. For it is the generosity of God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, and now graciously gives us all things. I remember a friend of mine once saying that when people met Jesus, they moved from being centripetal, that is, where they see everything in their world as spinning in towards them, they moved from being centripetal to being centrifugal, where everything flows outwards for the benefit of others. He gave the example of Zacchaeus. Remember that miser little tax collector in Luke's Gospel? Zacchaeus had spent his whole life squeezing the last penny out of the hapless citizens of Jericho. But after meeting Jesus, it was as though he couldn't give enough away. And it wasn't as though he did it grudgingly or because Jesus had been guilting him into it or twisting his arm. He did it willingly, joyfully, extravagantly. The same was true with the little Christian congregation in Corinth a generation later. When they heard that their fellow believers in Judea were going through a hard time because of a drought, they gave generously. And they could be generous because they had experienced God's gener generosity to them in Jesus. Though he was rich, wrote Paul, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so it was that Paul could urge them to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Well, it's important at this point to remind ourselves that generosity is far more than money. And what I'm talking about is an attitude of generosity that covers every area of life a whole culture of generosity, of extravagant open-heartedness, of joyful largesse that permeates every aspect of the Christian community. It was wonderful this morning, for example, to come in and find little candies, by the way, our favorites, <laughs> on the chairs this morning and to be given a book, Acts of Generosity. And I'm convinced that where this happens, there is little that could be more attractive to an unbelieving world. So let's leave it there with those three thoughts in our mind. Community, testimony, generosity. And as we move into our 34th year, may the Holy Spirit so move among us that Jesus 
may have all the glory. Amen. Amen. Can we just pray for a moment? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that little church in Jerusalem, so close to its beginning. And we thank you for the 33 years of this church. And we pray that as they were obedient to you in community and testimony and generosity, so this church may continue to be one that reflects all the beauty, all the goodness of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.